Hey everybody, how you doing? And welcome to episode number 89 of the John Riley Project. Today is Saturday, November 2nd, 2019. We're broadcasting as we always do from Poway, California, the city in the country here in the inland area of San Diego County. Thanks for joining. Thanks for listening. Thanks for viewing uh, our podcast. We really enjoy it. You know, this podcast is about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we're, we're going to cover a number of different things here today. Um, some, some are liberty-oriented, some are pursuit of happiness-oriented, and some are life-oriented, which will make this podcast you know, a little bit of a hopscotch. We're going to be like Lee Hacksaw Hamilton and crisscross the NFL training camps. You know, We're going to cover a lot of ground in this podcast. So we're going to have a little bit of fun on a Saturday night. Um, yeah, we're going to get into um, Elizabeth Warren's Medicare for All proposal that she finally rolled out or, uh, like a few days ago. We're going to get into um, San Diego and golf and some crazy golf stories um, that uh, that I was involved with when I was in college and as a young adult in my 20s that involved golf and a lot of other crazy sports. Um, and um, we're going to talk about, wow, you know, some current news and um but for me personally, one interesting thing happened. Maybe this has happened to you. I got my DMV renewal in the mail and my, my wife and my daughter, they, they've already you know gone and gotten their real ID. And they kept telling me, dad, have you gotten your real ID yet? And, and I would say, well, no, not yet, but I think I will soon. Cause I have to renew my license, um, you know, after the new year, cause my birthday's coming up here in the first quarter of the year. And they said, well, you know, you got to schedule your appointment way in advance. You know, it's, it's really hard to get an appointment. I'm like, okay, I understand. So I got, the, I got the renewal notice in the mail yesterday. This morning I went online, booked the appointment. You know, today is November 2nd. I got an appointment on January 30th, which is basically three months away. Insane. I mean, imagine if you needed to get a form filled out or, or just some kind of a basic requirement out in the private sector, and it took three months to get it. I mean- there would be other companies that would be hustling in there to offer a faster, better solution, but not with the DMV. There's only one DMV and they go at DMV speed. Well, thank God for the appointment setting process. That's an improvement, but three months. Yeah. So it, it, my, my family warned me and, and their warnings were true. So fortunately I'll be able to get it done in advance of my birthday. So not a problem, but have you gone through that? Have you gotten the real ID yet? I'm uh Apparently, you can't get on an airplane without it uh, come, I think, around October of 2020. Um, I'm looking forward to it, actually. The, the photo that's on my driver's license right now is awful. Um, and it's uh, I mean, if, if, if you ever happen to meet me and maybe we're out having an adult beverage or a cup of coffee someplace, ask me to see my driver's license. The photo is the most horrific picture. So I'm glad I'm going to get my photo taken and hopefully get a new photo. So I look a little bit more presentable. Um, what else is interesting news today on the front page of um, the San Diego Union-Tribune, or really the top headline at SanDiegoUnionTribune.com. That's where I go. We don't get the print paper anymore. Um, apparently, there was some um, smugglers are sawing through new sections of Trump's border wall. Um, using popular power tools, cutters are defeating the steel bollards, opening gaps large enough for people and drugs to pass through, agents and officials say. <laughs> so I saw this and I'm on one level, I'm, I'm laughing my ass off at this because it's funny. I mean, after all of this focus and attention of this big, beautiful wall and it's going to keep all the. Yeah, I mean, the things that Trump said about the Mexicans and calling them murderers and rapists and when he made his 
presidential announcement speech when he came down the friggin' escalator at Trump Tower. Um, and then to see the, the, the wall not really be a wall, it's actually a fence and the trouble they've had to get it up. And they finally got the thing erected, at least a portion of it. And now they're already undermining it, which is what was originally pr- predicted. You know, they figured it doesn't matter how high you build it. There's going to be a ladder. There's always some inventive people that build tunnels. And now in this case, they're just blowing right through the middle of it. So crazy. Um, th- th- I think I've commented on this before, but I'll go on a little soapbox here about this. I think his policy on immigration is terrible, just horrific. Um, Now, keep in mind where I come from philosophically. All right. I'm all about individual rights. That's why this podcast is about life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, that's in the Declaration of Independence of the United States, you know, that all men are created equal and we all have the inalienable rights of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. That means that we own our life. We are not subjects of King George. Um, we own ourselves and we can manage our life as we see fit as long as we don't, you know, harm others. We have liberty, the freedom to choose. Um, and finally, you know, the whole objective here from uh, for us in life in many levels is to pursue our own happiness to live a full life a flourishing life and i think those are just wonderful ideals now a tangent on the tangent um you know of course in america our implementation of these ideals has been very flawed um you know with slavery and and you know women's rights and all these other things we can go down the list um but we're getting better and we keep incrementally getting better until now, um, until now when we're going backwards. And so, you know, the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness don't just apply to Americans. Don't just apply to Europeans coming to America. Don't just apply to white people. They apply to everybody. It says all men are created equal. And, you know, back in the day when they said all men, they really meant all humans. Um, and are, we're all created equal. And, and these inalienable rights are given to us by our creator. At least that's how it's written in the, in the declaration of independence. And, you know, so these Mexicans and central Americans that are coming to America, they have these same rights too. And yet we're setting up walls and concentration camps or, um, you know, internment camps, whatever you like to call them. We're violating the very rights that our nation was founded upon. And that's why I just, this wall is just so crazy to me. Um, you know, the, the Statue of Liberty, just a beautiful symbol in America with a placard. Give us your poor, your huddled masses. We invite people to come here. America is a melting pot. Um, the beauty of America is the fact that we have this integration, this diversity, this um, this willingness to say, come join us. If you want to be an American with us, you're welcome here. I think it's just a great message. It's a beautiful message. And it's and it's so respectful and loving of of people around us. It's the very thing that we would hope someone would extend to us if we happen to be a visitor in their country. And so, um, but unfortunately, this wall, this policy is violating those rights. So this, when, when the whole thing was brought up about the wall and we're going to build a wall, it's going to be a big, beautiful wall. Mexico's going to pay for the wall. It was, uh, I, I just, I couldn't believe that, he was so successful with that Pied Piper message and people just lined up behind him. And, and now here we are, you know, so, 
struggled to get the wall up, and now already we're seeing flaws in it. And so, like I said, I was shaking my head. I was kind of half laughing, half flabbergasted by it all. But we'll see what happens um, with the wall. And now what are they going to do? How are they going to prevent people showing up with cordless power tools like Sawzalls from Milwaukee? Um, insane. All right. So the other interesting th- piece of news that I saw today, in fact, I just saw it a few hours ago on my Twitter feed. Steven Strasburg, um, the most valuable player um, in the World Series, the pitcher for the Washington Nationals, has now declared free agency. And this is an interesting piece of news because he signed, I think it was like a seven or an eight year deal three or four years ago. And in that deal, he had an opt out clause. And this is now the the time where he can execute that opt out, which basically gives him the chance to see if he can test the waters in free agency and make even more money. That's what's left on the remainder of his contract. Now, keep in mind that this young man, Steven Strasburg, by the way, San Diego State University, went to West Hills High School in Santee, just the greatest local success story. He has a guarantee of four years, $100 million dollars which for any of us, we would be the happiest people in the world to be making $25 million a year. And Strasburg says, I can do better. And I think that's just great. I mean, good for you, Steven Strasburg. And I think you will do better because you had the most amazing postseason. You went 5-0. and I think you had an ERA around 1 point. I think at last I saw it was 1.64. Um, MVP of the World Series. You know, you had a great season. Um you, dude, you deserve it. And with all the money that's available in baseball, go for it. I'm just so happy for him. And the fact that he's a local guy, great. And then meanwhile, all the Padre fans are just salivating. Oh, Steven Strasburg, come on home. Local boy does good. Padres welcome you. So all the Padre fans are really rooting for Strasburg to become that ace that the Padres really want. But after the big contracts to Myers and Hosmer and Machado, I'm not sure if Fowler is ready to sign another check. We'll find out. But wouldn't that be great if Strasburg came here? And if he signed a deal, I think he's 31. So you figure he's got like at least five, six years left in him. So maybe they can give him a three or four year deal for some big money. We'll see. Um, I think it's exciting. I'm really happy for Steven Strasburg. Um, Okay, so um, one other thing I I think it's worth noting. It's a little bit of a story to this. And, you know, I, I have... When I do my podcast, I have guests and uh, we do interviews and sometimes I do these solo podcasts where I get up on my little soapbox and express myself and share my thoughts and on a variety of issues. Well, I'm always looking for new guests and, and uh, there's a gentleman that lives here in the Ranch Bernardo Poway area and he is an author. And so I reached out to him and talking about having him on here as a guest. And, you know, we've had a lot of other authors that have come on board here and they had a book and... You know, they're kind of doing their own little local book tour, which I think is which is fabulous. And so I, I wanted to have him on the podcast. And so um, we got together and we met and and he just wanted to get to know me first and kind of get, uh, you know, kind of feel at ease, which makes sense. You know, showing up at someone's house and doing a, a podcast recording here might be a little heavy for some people. And I understand that. Um, and he said to me. And this was an interesting comment. He said, you know, I've been like going back and watching some of your podcasts on YouTube. And he goes, man, you cover a lot of stuff. You're sort of all over the place. (laughs) And I said, you know, I am, you know, and and that's exactly right. I like to cover a wide variety of things. I like talking about a lot of things that I enjoy talking about. 
And and then I, I kind of shared this story with him, or at least part of it. But I want to share this with you. Because I might have mentioned this once before, but this goes – it's worth mentioning. So, you know, in the world of podcasts, like if you get on like iTunes or, you know, now it's called Apple Podcasts or Spotify, I mean, there are literally hundreds of thousands of podcasts that exist. And if you can think of a topic, there's a podcast on it. Um, and, you know, we cover in this podcast sports, business, politics, electric vehicles, um, self-improvement. I mean, a lot of different things. In each of those categories, there are countless number of podcasts that already exist. And I thought to myself, do I want to be just another one of those? And also, do I want to just be narrowly focused in one particular niche? And I thought about it in the beginning and I was like, I don't know. You know, I kind of want to talk about a lot of issues, but if I have all these issues in one podcast, would that be confusing to the listeners and, and viewers? I wasn't sure. Uh, but what I did is I did what Catherine Clower told me to do. Well, well, she told me when she did our podcast here a few weeks ago, but I did what she recommended in that podcast is, you know, as a as an entrepreneur, just don't overthink it. Just get on the road and start doing it. And you will learn as you go and things will unfold as you go. You can't predict the future very accurately. Just get started. So that's what I did. I got started and we had a nice run to start this podcast in the fall of last year when we were able to interview all of our local candidates here for mayor, city council, school board, and, and it was wonderful. Um, but then after the, the political season was over, I was like, okay, now what? What am I going to do? And so I, I thought it through and I said, you know, I'm just going to go f- fall back on what my original idea was. I'm going to cover a lot of ground and I'm just going to share my opinion on a wide range of issues. Well, around that time, I was working on my my website, you know, johnreillyproject.com. By the way, go check it out. And um, while I was working on that, uh, it's a podcast, or excuse me, it's a website that's hosted at GoDaddy. It's a WordPress site. And I had to like resolve some kind of a technical thing, I think with my domain name or my DNS record, something like that. And so I called the GoDaddy support people, you know, the technical support. And by the way, they're always great. And the guy helped me and he walked me through it. And he was looking at the website as we were going through this tech support call. And he looks at me, he said, or he says, is this, is this a podcast? And I said, as a matter of fact, it is uh, because at the time, I think the, the I had a different front page photo, but it was the table with the microphones and everything. And I said, yeah, it's a podcast. And he says, well, what's it about? And I said, well, you know, interesting that you ask because I've been giving a lot of th- thought to this, but I'm doing politics and sports and and, you know, all these other topics. And he's like, really? He goes, that's awesome. And I, I said, well, thanks. You know, thanks for the support. And he, he said, you know, I, I used to have a podcast. And I wish I would have done it the way you do it. I said, really? And, and, and I tell me more. So because I was going through this dilemma myself, you know, should I be a narrow focus, focus podcast or should I be this broad, you know, kind of wide focus? And he said that he had a podcast that was about um, the the business of the music industry. And he would interview um, people that work for record labels and they talk about publishing rights and they would talk about performance contracts for artists and, you know, the distribution of music and everything else. And he was really into that. But it was such a narrow niche that he was only able to grow his audience to a certain limit. And then it kind of capped and he wasn't able to really grow it much more. And he he also was perplexed because he wanted to talk about a lot of other issues 
but he never felt that he could because his audience always expected him to talk about exclusively the business aspect of the music industry. And so he just felt so limited, so confined, um, so pigeonholed, and that, that really upset him. It bothered him, and he wasn't sure what to do. So what ended up happening, he said, is he kind of lost enthusiasm for the project, and then he eventually abandoned it. And, you know, he had a pretty solid base of subscribers. I mean, what he was telling me was pretty impressive, but, you know, it it was definitely limited, but he had done well within that very narrow category. And he said if he had to do it all over again, he would have covered more topics. He would have created a framework for the podcast that allowed him to bob and weave and to explore a lot of different issues. And he said that what I was doing, he liked because rather than being stuck in a, a rabbit hole, instead he could take, you know, he said the way he saw this of what I was trying to do and, and he articulated what I was struggling to articulate is that he, he that he could take the, the he wishes he could take his visitors, his listeners, his viewers um, on a trip, on a journey to experience the world the way he experiences it, to essentially see the world through his own lens. And I thought, Oh, that's beautiful. Okay. And then that resolved the conflict I was having. And then, and then subsequently I was noticing like, you know, you look at other people that interview guests, you know, very famous people like Larry King or any of the late night talk show hosts. And I'm not saying I'm anywhere at that level, that's for sure. But, you know, they don't stay in a narrow lane. Um, they talk to, um, actors and musicians and comedians and other entertainers. They talk to athletes and business people and community activists and politicians, and they cover a a wide range, a lot of ground. And I figured, well, hell, I mean, they've been successful, so I can do this too. I'll just do it at a local level. And so I've been very happy, very pleased that we've been able to do this. And, And so, you know, as I'm sitting down with this gentleman, this author here in Rancho Bernardo, like I said, I don't want to give away his name. I don't want to jinx it because we haven't booked the, the, the podcast interview. I hope we will. Um, and I explained that, you know, I, I, I have this podcast set up, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness. It gives me the framework to talk about all these issues. And I like that. And I like taking people on this journey. And that's really why the project or the podcast is called The John Riley Project. It's not called, um, you know, San Diego politics um, review. It's not called, um, you know, San Diego Padres fan club podcast. You know, it's just the John Riley project. And so we talk about a lot of different things. And I like that. Uh, That's important to me. And so if you're ever wondering why the heck I do this and the way that I do it, that's why. So um, these are issues I enjoy. These are issues that I'm passionate about. These are issues I like to share. And I love, love, love having the dialogue with my guests about these issues. And that is really a driving reason for this podcast, to have that rational, civil conversation, that long-form conversation, um, and and to do it in, um, yeah, like in a respectful tone. So anyways, um, I'm rambling here, but... I wanted to share that with you because I think that's important for you to know. Um, that's why I cover a lot of different things. So let me cover something else. And and this is another piece of news that, that occurred. And it's about the golf course in University City closing. And this is called the Town Park Villas Golf Course. This golf course 
is special. And it's not this amazing golf course like Torrey Pines or La Costa. You know, it's not this gorgeous golf course. It's this crappy little nine-hole course that's nestled in between these kind of Adobe-style homes in the back corner of University City. So if you've ever been like on Genesee and Governor, you know where those two intersect, and then go east on Governor and not all the way to the 805 freeway, but there's a road there. I think it's called Gullstrand. And if you just go south of that, there is a it's a community of these like these adobe brick homes and they built a little nine hole golf course on it i think the longest hole is maybe like 100 yards it's it's really really short um and in fact if you're ever driving along the 52 freeway going westbound from the you know just west of the 805 and you look up to the right up on the hill you'll see the eighth and ninth holes of that golf course like the flags so when i was in college uh my friend jack discovered this golf course and he took me there and that's where I learned to play golf. And you really only needed like a, a nine iron, a pitching wedge and a putter. So it was wonderful. You didn't have to lug a big bag. And if you were just learning, it was perfect. And it was, it was at the time we went, it was reasonably maintained. It wasn't like the greens were spectacular like Torrey Pines, but they were very functional and it was very friendly. And you'd go to the clubhouse. It was like four or five bucks to golf. And it was just so kicked back. And you could even bring a couple of beers with you on the on the course. And you just had a great time, you know, and you walked it. And there were old people there. There were young people there. There were parents there teaching their children the golf. And we had a great time. And the greatest part of this is, is that when I had children and they wanted to play golf, I immediately thought of that place. And we went there. I took my two children there. Um, gosh, it was probably eight years ago, 10 years ago. And that was the first time they had learned to golf. And we had a fun time. Um, so this golf course is closing. And it's a shame. You know, they, they had gone through, you know, just like a lot of golf courses in San Diego, they're going through troubling times. The interest in golf is not nearly as great. Um, and at the same time, the cost to water these golf courses is extraordinary. And then meanwhile, it's pretty valuable land that they could build homes on. Um, we're experiencing that here in Poway with Stone Ridge. Um, but uh, they decided, you know, it had been in decline for the last couple of years. And so they just wrapped it up, I think, at the end of October. it's Now it's complete. It's it's over. But you know, one of the stories that there's a couple of stories, the one that I really remember, I think I was on the seventh hole of this golf course and I was getting ready to hit the ball. I remember I, I was just learning to golf. I was probably 20, 21 years old. And I remember my friends were saying, as I was get warming up, getting ready to shoot, they would say freeway. I'm like, freeway, what are you talking about? I'm, like, I'm aiming for the hole and I hit the ball. Sure enough, it launched right into the middle of the 52 freeway. And they're like, how did you know I was going to do that? And I said, well, look at your feet. They were pointing at the freeway. <laughs> and I, I was like, oh, duh. I didn't even realize it. Um, sure. And I mean, that's how I, that's where I learned, you know, so it was cool. And we used to go there for a stretch. We really enjoyed it. And then we kind of got better at it. And then we would go to a couple other golf courses. Um, my friend Jack and I, we would sneak onto the golf course at the La Jolla Beach and Tennis Club, where one time... You know, right around dusk when there was really no one there, but you could still see well enough. And my buddy hit a hole in one there. You know, we were just goofing off. Crazy story. But we got better at it. And then we started golfing at Torrey Pines. And granted, we were still, you know, pretty amateurish, but we could hold our own. 
and we had a great time and we loved it so much. And we said, you know, we, we like this golf is fun, but you know, you know, like in the Olympics, you know, they have the decathlon and they play, they do all these different sports. I, I wonder if there is a way that we could combine golf and like some other sports and have like our own decathlon. And we're like, yeah. And we started brainstorming around this and we came up with this whole concept that we called the Leisure Olympics. And it was really popular. It was a big, big deal for us. Um, amongst our friends in our fraternity in college. And then even after college, we did it and had like, we'd get you know, easily 50 to 100 people to do this. And so it was six events. It was um, golf, bowling, billiards, darts, horseshoes, and beer drinking. <laughs> and we combined it all into one event. And, you know, my friend Jack, who's He's a mastermind of this sort of thing. I mean, by the way, Jack created fantasy baseball in the late 1980s before the Internet. We were doing rotisserie baseball. He somehow got the statistics, updated it all on a on a um, Lotus 123 um, spreadsheet, and it would send us the updates uh, by fax every week. It was an extraordinary thing that he pulled off. Um, and just think now, the whole fantasy sports thing is huge. Um, at any rate, but he, he, he helped create this scoring system and we took the, the golf score, the bowling score, the dart score for all of these and we normalized it into a score of one to 10. So there were six events in the Leisure Olympics. And if you got a, a 10 on every event, a final score of 60, that was the best you could do. And it was really fun how we did it. We took, you know, we, and we did the golf at that golf course at the Town Park VS Golf Course in University City because it was perfect. It was a little course, and you can get through it in a short amount of time and still have plenty of time in the day to do the other events. So we had a, a scoreboard, and you know, depending on what your golf score was, it would convert to seven points, six points, whatever. And we did the same thing for um, bowling and we would do two games, you know, of 10 frames and you got to use your best score of the two and then normalize it into a score of one to 10. Darts, we did the same thing. And we actually created this 11 by 17 sheet with concentric circles, um, you know, rather than a traditional um Dartboard. We wanted just to simplify it. And so the closer you got to the bullseye, the more points you got. Um, and then it provided a really easy like scoring system where when you were done, you would just hand over your um, your your 11 by 17 sheet of paper and then we would circle them and easily calculate your points. It was kind of like when people go to those shooting ranges where they've got the white paper with like as a, a torso on it and they check where all the bullet holes went. It was the same thing that we did, but for darts on a dartboard. Um, and then um, horseshoes, we did the same thing because, you know, we could keep score in horseshoes. I think we had like 10 throws and, you know, three for a ringer and then one point if it was within a horseshoe's distance of the pin. And I think if we had a leaner, we gave him two. Um, and so depending on your horseshoe score, that would convert to a score of one to 10. And then for the, um, <laughs> we saved the beer drinking one to lap to last. And it was how fast you could drink a six pack of beer <laughs> and, uh, that, and things got sloppy <laughs> as you could imagine. Um, and we had all kinds of rules around that. And if something happened in your beer drinking adventure, you could be disqualified and, and we did it safely. You know, we, we, we did it as our last event and nobody was going anywhere afterwards. Um, but just the stories, the crazy things that happened with that 
lots of fun, good memories. And then when we were coming up around the idea, we were thinking, well, who, who is sort of like the, the quintessential person that does all six of these things, golf, billiards, horseshoes, darts, um, bowling, and beer drinking. And we said, oh, that's Fred Flintstone. And so Fred Flintstone was, we called him our leisure god. And so we had a program that we would give all of the participants that gave instructions on where the events were and then the scoring system and everything. So it was self-contained. And then on the cover, we always had a picture of Fred Flintstone as the leisure god. And, um, and then we would obviously have closing ceremonies and made a big thing out of it. It was just a, it was a really fun thing. And I just wanted to share that with you because I, I enjoyed it. And, you know, once you start getting a little older, maybe in your early to mid twenties, it's still fun to do. And then eventually we, the, some of us, we would get married and then there were less people that would show up and, and then you have children and then no one shows up anymore. Um, but that was a really fun time. So maybe you have a similar story, maybe a similar deal. Um, I remember talking with some other folks that lived in other parts of the of the United States, and I remember they were telling me they had done something similar to this. Maybe you have. And if you have, let me know. Reach out to me on social media and let me know your story. Did you ever do a Leisure Olympics or something like that? But we did the golf there. And, um, you know, like I said, I, I, I brought my children there maybe eight years ago or so, and we learned to golf. And, and uh, had a fun time. So the um, Town Park Villas Golf Course at Governor Drive and Gulf Strand in University City in San Diego shut its door. So um, thanks for the memories, folks. We had a great time there. Um, all right. So uh, got one more thing before we get into this Elizabeth Warren thing, because I'm going to save that for last because there's a lot in that. But there's one other thing that I wanted to share. And if you had a chance, um, I posted a blog article um, on my website at johnreillyproject.com, and it's, it's called The Seven Steps That You Can Take to, to Take Greater Control of Your Schedule and of Your Life. And there's some really good lessons in there, and I kind of merged some things that I learned from um, you know, the, uh, the Seven Habits of, of Successful People uh, from Stephen Covey and also some uh, tools that I've learned on my own. And I integrated some things from Brendan Burchard. And I've talked about Brendan Burchard. He is a, it's kind of, I mean, to simplify it greatly, he's in the same category as like a Tony Robbins. You know, he's a, a motivator, uh, a business coach. Um, uh, he's a guy that helps transform people's lives. He's a public speaker, a, a, a podcaster, a author. I mean, just a dynamic guy. Um, Brendan Burchard has this concept of a, um, he, he calls it a battle board. And um, I created my own battle board and um, I had a chance to really use it today. And I want to share the story. So the whole concept of the battle board, it's part of this time management system. And in fact, it was one of the seven steps in that blog article that I wrote. And it's the whole idea of, you know, to answer the question, what are you working on? What is the big visual that lays out your plan for the year. You know, it's like the, the big jumbotron scoreboard in the stadium. Um, what is the thing that is staring you in the face, that's motivating you, that's driving you, that is not hidden in a spreadsheet, tucked away in a folder on your computer, but it's just literally in your face every day that keeps you on track. That's the battle board. So under Brendan Burchard's concept is that you literally get a giant piece of 
of butcher paper, you know, or a flip chart paper, or maybe you've got a really big whiteboard. And on the top of it, you write battle board, you know, and 2019 or maybe your 2020 plan. And then you create 12 boxes. Okay, and these 12 boxes represent each of the 12 months. Now, the one I did, I started my battle board. I created it near the end of September. So I only did three boxes, October, November, December. And then when I get into December, I'm going to make a full 12 box version of this. And so I, um, I filled it out. And for each month, I wrote a list of the individual, I guess, initiatives or major projects I wanted to get done. And I listed, I think, seven things up there that were related to this podcast project. And, um, and then next to that, I also had all my metrics for the number of, um, you know, certain goals in terms of views and, and downloads, you know, with the podcast and views and minutes watched on YouTube, um, which by the way, we dramatically exceeded our goals. We had a great, great October with this podcast. Um, really, really happy. So now I gotta, I gotta now go even more now here in November. So this is motivating me, which is great. Um, and then I, I'm also keeping track of how big my social media audience is, and and so the my subscribers in YouTube has been growing. My um, uh, so my followers in Facebook mostly flat, and I had some small uh, improvement in my followers on Twitter, which is good, uh, but. Now now I'm going to be putting, you know, more emphasis. And so now I've got a paid ad running in Facebook, trying to build that audience as well. So this battle board concept to me is just, it's such an obvious thing to do. If you think about it, a lot of people are doing similar versions of this, but it really, really works. And that's what I want to make a point about. So um, this morning I went through and I calculated my results for the month of October and I was able to write down on my battle board right there, you know, check mark, check mark, check mark, and then the numbers on my scoreboard. And I love it. So um, I have that a big sheet of butcher. It's actually a, a flip chart. You know, those giant ones that are on easels. It's on one of those. And I just tore off a sheet and I taped it up against my wall and I love it. And so I, I encourage you to build your own battle board. In fact, if you want to learn more about it, check out my blog post at johnreillyproject.com. Um, and it's the seven steps to improve your life and improve your schedule and take control of them. So love it, love it, love it. So great success with that. All right. Now let's get into the Elizabeth Warren piece. And you know, um, in October, I did a my, one of my podcasts was Elizabeth Warren, OMG. Um, I did a review of the last Democratic debate, and I really kind of focused on Elizabeth Warren because the spotlight was on her and there was a lot to talk about on that um, about that debate. Well, one of the things that she was getting hammered on in that debate was how is she going to pay for her Medicare for all plan? And people were saying, you know, you're the candidate that says you've got a plan for that. I mean, any issue, I've got a plan for that. But for this big issue, perhaps arguably the biggest issue that she's campaigning on, Medicare for all, she had no plan. You know, she would conceptually say, well, um, the middle class will pay less. Their costs will go down. Costs for the rich will go up. But people would say, well, you got to raise taxes. And she would refuse to say it. She would dodge the question. Um, and so because she was hammered so heavily on stage, 
she finally had to come out with a plan and she did. And so we're going to break all this down because to me, it's very interesting because I, I love the political gamesmanship. I, I like the messaging, uh, the contest and the primary. To me, it's fascinating. But I'm looking at this through the lens of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. I'm looking at this through the lens of individual rights. And you'll find that Elizabeth Warren does not care about that at all. <laughs> and that, that's why, in my opinion, she's my least favorite of the Democratic candidates um, that are on the stage in the debates. Um, and that's why we're going to break this down, and you'll see why I think that. But first, I want to I want to make a, I want to share this one quote, and this is from um, Alex de Tocqueville, who I believe he you know, he he was a Frenchman, and um, in the early 1800s, I, he was part of our American history. I think he was one of the did he like do the the street planning for Washington D.C. Something like that strikes me. I'm not sure if that was him, but I do know that he has been quoted numerous times in American history, and and this is a really good one. And I and I I'll tell you what. Uh, yeah, here let me share this. Alex de Tocqueville said, "The American Republic will endure until the day Congress discovers that it can bribe the public with the public's money." Oh, it's just perfect, Alex de Tocqueville. You. We're ahead of your time. This is like 200 years ago. He made this quote, and he was absolutely right. He said, the American Republic will endure until the day Congress discovers that it can bribe the public with the public's own money. And that sets the stage perfectly for what we're going to talk about with Elizabeth Warren and her plan for Medicare for all. And so she finally did it. She came out with a plan and she laid it out and she she kept to her word. You know, she said that she was going to increase taxes on the very rich and the middle class were not going to experience any tax increases. And so she put this thing out there and, um, you know, the, the plan that she laid out on a paper from her perspective, she thinks she avoided income tax, uh, raising taxes on the on the middle class, but she didn't. She failed, and I'm going to share it with you why. Um, I think, like I said, I, I want to set this up because this plan that she's put forward violates the inalienable rights of Americans, our rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This has been obliterated in her plan because she is very content that she can violate the rights of some people to reward others. And that's what's happening in this plan. So what we got here is not a pursuit of happiness, but instead is demanding that some people sacrifice for the benefit of others. Um, and it undermines liberty. And the one thing that Beto O'Rourke did say in the last debate, and you know, Beto, <laughs> see you later, he just checked out of the race. But he was saying that Elizabeth Warren was really motivated, you know, by to be punitive, you know, his vindictiveness. And that is so apparent when you see her speak. And it was very apparent in this plan that she laid out. So let's break it down. So According to most people, that the Medicare for all is going to cost about $34 trillion over a 10-year period. So that's $3.4 trillion a year, which, by the way, is roughly what is brought in in income taxes. Roughly speaking, America brings in about $3 
trillion or so in in taxes of revenue and then spends 4 trillion that's why we have a deficit of about 1 trillion so this plan is about 34 trillion per, for 10 years or 3.4 trillion per year and that's that's widely accepted by people that have studied this but elizabeth warren says well instead of doing 34 trillion over 10 i'm going to do it just 20.5 trillion over 10 so immediately here she's she's moving the goalpost she's trying to shorten it so that it'll make it easier for her to do the math to make this work and so she's already saying that states are already providing welfare programs, uh, you know, like Medicaid or here in California, Medi-Cal. Um, and there's, you know, these plans for I think it's called it's called CHIP, if I remember. So it's a program for families with children. And so there's already welfare programs and she wants to keep those as they exist. And that will help the, the, the very poor. Um, and then state employees are already getting benefits to pay for their health care. And she said she would keep that or that would already be categorized. So it, according to her, it would leave $20.5 trillion, But she also has to lower – she says she's going to lower administrative costs uh, and she wants to lower drug prices, prescription drug prices. And to me, this is laughable because Medicare today prevents – the negotiation or the renegotiation of prices, um, of, of prescription drug prices is because of the regulatory environment, because that's the way it's set up, is that people think regulations are what, you know, they, they, they think of it in terms of clean water, clean air. And yeah, there is regulations for that. But a lot of regulations are these rules that lobbyists are able to give money to these politicians who then backdoor, change the law, change the regulatory code to tilt the playing field and give special advantages to specific industries or specific companies. And when you look at Medicare Part D, um, one of the things that's built into that is that Congress cannot renegotiate the price of prescription drugs as part of Medicare. I mean, the most insane thing. That's how government typically works. And so that's what we are getting with our current Medicare system. She thinks that she's going to be able to abolish that. Now, if you can do that, great. But I have no faith that's going to happen. And when we get more and more government involved, what she's trying to do, it's just going to create more of these kinds of distortions. So she thinks she's going to save money by lowering prescription drug prices. That has to happen, by the way. Prescription drug prices are stupid expensive. And it's because of that regulatory environment that does that. Um, but anyways, um, she wants to do this in a four-year transition. That's fast. I mean, she wants to really flip a switch. And in four years, we're going to have over 150 million people that are on private health care plans, health care insurance plans, switch to this Medicare for all. Her plan abolishes private insurance. Her plan is a single payer plan. Her plan is essentially a monopoly. It's a government monopoly on health insurance, which I find so darn ironic because you know, she is always harping against corporate power, slamming them for their mon monopolistic practices. And then meanwhile, she wants to create a single entity to manage all health care insurance for all of America and make competition illegal. Um, so she wants to have a monopoly. So I, I just think it's insane. Um, now, candidates like Mayor Pete uh, Buttigieg and I think Amy Klobuchar and others um, have talked about a public option where 
if which essentially means if you've got a plan with your private employer, you don't have to switch. But if you choose, you can buy into Medicare at your option. It's, that's why it's called the public option. To me, this makes a lot of sense. If if you're going to have a government-run health care insurance plan, which, by the way, I don't support, but if that is the end game, the right thing to do is to create a public option and have that as a, as a, um, a glide path to transition from the system we have now, which I admit is a cluster. The system we have now is very badly broken. To get from that to single payer, you don't just force people and pull people off plans and jam them into a one size fits all. The right thing to do is to do a public option and then let people choose it. And if it is as good as it's advertised, it people should flock to it. But she wants to avoid that. She, and she wants to get it done in four years, which in the world of government, that's fast. In the world of changing the healthcare insurance for 250 million people, is that our population now in America? Is it 250? Maybe it's 300, but it's a huge number of people. To get that done in four years is a big, big bite of the apple. Um, now, part of what she wants to do is to take the money that is already being used by companies and um, that are to pay for employer health care and then just transition that to the government. So she says, instead of paying premiums to insurers, companies would send an estimated $8.8 trillion over 10 years to the federal government as a, quote, employer Medicare contribution, end quote. <laughs> a contribution, like it sounds so nice, so voluntary, like a contribution you make at church or at your community center. It's not a contribution. It's a tax. It's a tax that you will be obligated to pay. And if you don't pay, you will be penalized. And if you don't pay the penalties, they will throw you in jail because that's the way the tax system works. It's a coerced, forced system that is uh, run by an authoritarian um, organization, the IRS. Um, so she calls it an employer Medicare contribution. Um, it only applies to companies that already cover health premiums today. So think about that because there are some companies that provide health care insurance and a great deal of them do, but there are a lot of companies that don't, particularly small businesses, um, entrepreneurial companies, uh, companies with a huge volume of part-timers. They may not provide health care insurance. So the companies that do have health care insurance for their employers, they will be forced to pay this tax, you know, uh, employee Medicare contribution, and the other companies won't. The companies that already don't have health care insurance won't be burdened by this tax, won't have, you know, essentially the government hammering for this. Now, th that, think about that. That creates this uneven playing field. You know, one of the things about America, it should be that we have equality under the law, you know, that we're all held you know, essentially where we all play by the same set of rules. But what this is doing is it's creating two sets of rules. One, some companies are going to be treated one way, other companies treated a different way. That's part of the problem that we have in our regulatory environment today is, is the, these distortions, these special favors for different groups. So what's going to happen? Companies are going to manipulate the system. Um, companies are going to 
for example, they may shut down uh, their company, start up as a different company, and then not provide health care for their employees because they figure, oh, well, we've got this Medicare for all. They'll just get it be on the dole to get it. And then, then the company is relieved from having to pay the tax to the government. Um, they'll just shift that to um, the taxpayer. So what happens is, this is the thing that I think people don't really understand, is that when there's tremendous shifts in the tax code that creates different incentives and it it changes the behavior of people. The the classic example that I talk about is electric vehicles. Um, The policy that exists today is if you get an electric vehicle, you get a $7,500 cash payment from the federal government, a $2,500 payment from the state government here in California. Now, I think that is a horrible policy. Terrible. I mean, it's corporate welfare is what it is. It's taxpayers subsidizing others so they can get these fancy cars that typically, you know, only people in the middle class or the upper middle class or the rich can afford. Well, you know what? I love electric cars. I love the technology. And I responded to this incentive structure. I am playing the game. And so what I do is I we have two electric cars and we do it because we have all these financial benefits in doing so. So our behavior changed when the incentive structure changed. That's what's going to happen here. Um, and I think people lose sight of that. I think sometimes politicians think that if the incentives change, that people are going to still stay the same course and their behavior will be unchanged. So I expect what's going to happen is that companies will see the inherent invan- advantage of not having to be burdened with that heavy tax and instead shut down their business, um, and then restart under a new name without paying um, health care and then shifting those costs to the taxpayer. Um, so that won't surprise me at all. Then she has this whole notion of the, the taxes on the wealthy. And man, does she come down on this. And she's already been very heavy handed on this about having wealth taxes and making the rich, you know, pay their fair share, which I think is a debatable point. But um She's now like doubling down heavy on this. So billionaires would be subject to a new tax of three cents on the dollar on net worth above one billion. This, in addition to the wealth tax she announced earlier this year, which would also place a three percent point levy on billionaires. Also, the wealthiest one percent would be taxed on capital gains income annually rather than at the time of sale, and the capital gains would be raised to match income tax rates. Combined, this would raise $3 trillion. Okay, now, first of all, she wants to, she already wanted to tax billionaires at 3% wealth tax. So just to make the math easy, if you had a, a billion dollars, then 10% of a billion is $100 million, is 30 million. So if you had a billion dollars of net worth, you would be required to write a check to the government for $30 million every year. Okay. Now what she wants to do is essentially double that. Uh, Now, granted, we're talking about billionaires. We're talking about an infinitesimally tiny quantity of people that this affects, but come on. I mean, aren't we supposed to have equality under the law? 
Okay. Now I know everyone's saying the the billionaires they got plenty of money and they can they can afford it and they need to pay. But you know what? It's vindictive. It's punitive. Going after one group of people and making them you know pony up huge amounts of money and other people not having to pay more at all. Um, it's unfair. It's uneven. It's um, it's a continuation of this tilted playing field. It's it violates the whole concept of what our nation should be about, which is equality under the law. All men created equal. This is a, an unequal application of this. So imagine, take a person, I don't know, Jeff Bezos. We can talk about some of the Walmart heirs, but let's do Bezos as an example. He's worth, I don't know, over a hundred billion bucks. I mean, just stupid money. So 6%, there's a 3% and then she added 3%. So she, he would have to write a check to the government for $6 billion every single year. Do you think he's really going to do that? Remember I said, we, people respond to incentives. Okay, so do you think he is going to just willingly say, yeah, I got to write a check, $6 billion a year, here you go. And then next year, another $6 billion. The year after that, another $6 billion. Do you really think he's going to do that? There is no friggin' way he is going to do that. Um, what will happen is, is that the, the valuation of really what his net worth is, is going to be tilted or negotiated to something else, to a lower amount. And if, if it comes down to seeing 6% of his worth eroded every year, year after year, it's like the opposite of compound interest. This is a, an erosion of his value. He's just going to move. He's just going to leave the United States. And then suddenly all that, that revenue that comes along with it won't be there because people respond to incentives. She's assuming that they're all going to just continue to pay, which I just think is ridiculous. Um, this is why I said from the beginning, Warren is all about tearing people down. That's what she wants to do. She wants to take money away from these rich people. She wants to go after them. Now, again, like I said, you can look at me and say, oh, this Riley guy, he's defending the rich. You know, I'm not. I'm defending equality under the law. I'm, def I'm defending the notion that we should never go and attack a minority. I'm defending the notion that we shouldn't attack in a minority and steal from them. It's not right. It doesn't matter if it's someone has $100 billion or they've got $1,000 in their bank account. It doesn't matter. It's just morally wrong. It's morally wrong for me to go to Jeff Bezos' house and steal $6 billion from his, from his estate. So why is it suddenly morally right if Elizabeth Warren does it? So I just I have a real trouble with this. Um, and think about this. This is, his, this is like a savings this is something he's built. So this is his savings that's going to be chipped away and eroded. And again, how do you value it? Like, it's not like he's got $100 billion in the bank just sitting there. He can write a check. A lot of that's just tied up into his investment in Amazon. So some, a lot of that's not liquid. So he, in order for him to even write a check for $6 billion, he's going to have to liquefy some of his assets. And I think a lot of this, this is part of the end game here, is that they don't, these people don't want billionaires to exist. We've heard that from AOC. We've heard it at Bernie. And we're essentially hearing it from Warren is that they want to tear them down. And, you know, people, when people came, we talked about immigration earlier. When people came to the United States, they came here to seek opportunity. 
to live in a in a in a, um, in a in a society that was all about entrepreneurism and opportunity and freedom, and that you weren't living under the thumb of a king that could limit you and control you. Here you can do what you want and you can make fabulous riches more than your dreams could ever uh, could imagine. And there shouldn't be a limit on that if we live in a country that values liberty, if we live in a country that's considered a free society. But she wants to tear them down. So I I, I just, I, I, again, I'm troubled by this. Um, and then besides, it's a wealth tax. And, you know, as much as we hear um, our progressive friends talk about, oh, well, the, every you know nation on earth, any every industrial nation on earth has socialized medicine except the United States. And they often cite European countries, particularly Scandinavian countries like Sweden and Denmark. Well, you know what? In, in European countries, they've tried a wealth tax. And it doesn't work. They, it always fails because what happens is it never generates the revenue that they expected. It creates a whole um, heavy burden of enforcement, um, and it's difficult to manage. And and a lot of these nations have abandoned it because it doesn't work very well. And they've gone – actually, in, in Europe, they've implemented the value-added tax, the VAT, which is what Andrew Yang is talking about. So as much as – you know, we hear from our progressive friends to say we should be implementing a system that already works. When it comes to this, they want to implement a system that has already been proven to fail. So, again, I just think this is almost more about trying to tear the rich people down. Um, and I, I, I think it's important to say that when it comes to this notion of wealth inequality, which is what drives a lot of this as well, if a person has earned a great deal of wealth and done so by um, by freely engaging with other customers, by providing products and services that help improve the lives of their customers and done it through a purely voluntary trade without any coercion, without any manipulation of the market through government regulations, et cetera, if they did it on that basis, I'd say – more power to you, man. The more you earn, the better. Just like I talk about with Steven Strasberg. If you can earn more, he has, he's going to make $100 million over the next four years. If he can earn more, go for it, man. You're worth it. Um, but still, um, we see pe- the, these progressives, particularly Warren, wanting to tear these people down. So, um, And then you, know, you hear this argument, well, they need to pay their fair share. And how many times have you heard that? They need to pay their fair share. Well, what's fair? That's subjective. How do you decide what's fair? Is fair based on how much you use? Is it based on how much you earn? Is it based on what the need of someone else is? What's fair? And then also, what is your share? Is your share more than someone else's? How much more? Is it disproportionately more? So the whole concept of fair share is a BS argument because it can never be mathematically defined. It's not objective. It's purely subjective. And so I always find that to be a political football that's thrown back and forth to try to make a point to, again, to, to provide some moral rationale to tear other people down so other people can get goodies to make their life better. And I, 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 it's a huge moral problem. Um, and then we hear people talk about health care should be a right. And. I understand that. I mean, I, I think people think my life is valuable. No one's life should be um, 
held hostage. No one's life should be um, you know, denied health care uh, because they don't have enough money. I understand that angle. But I invite you to look at it a, a, a different way. How can something be a right like health care if it places a duty on someone else? That's what Warren's plan does. That's what a lot of these plans do in society is that they want to make it a right. But in order to make it a right, they have to violate the rights of someone else. We all have the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That means we're sovereign individuals. We can make choices about our life. We can live our life according to our own terms. But if someone else has a right to something, health care, I mean, we can, we can make a list of these things. But in order to get that, they got to either take resources away from someone else or force that person to provide the service, then you're violating their rights. To me, a right, a so-called right, I'll put it in air quotes, that places a duty on someone else should never be a right in the first place. Um, that's critical. So again, I, that's why I bring this up. It, Warren and what she wants to accomplish goes right in the face of our Declaration of Independence and our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and what this podcast is all about. So I can't emphasize that more strongly than I am right now. Okay, so she also wants to revoke the uh, the Trump tax cuts. Now, keep in mind, she promised that it would not raise taxes on the middle class. Well, the Trump tax cuts offered tax cuts for some people in the middle class. And we can argue about it. We can break down certain examples. But for a lot of people in the middle class, they saw their um, uh, their individual deductions greatly increased. Um, we saw you know people having lower tax bills. We saw other people that have their that are middle class small business owners that have S corporations or LLCs. We saw the taxes change and they also paid a lower overall tax rate. Speaking for myself, um, our tax rate um, on a percentage basis for the 2018 calendar year was lower overall than our tax rate for the 2016 calendar year. And our income was generally pretty consistent. Uh, but the percentage, when you kind of did the net net of it, our effective tax rate went down. So if they are going to overturn the Trump tax cuts, that will result in a tax increase for some in the middle class, potentially many in the middle class. That on its own is a violation of our own promise that would not raise the cost for people in the middle class. So um, let's move on. She also wants to reduce tax evasion. So Warren argues that she can collect an additional $2.3 trillion, and that's over 10 years, by empowering the Internal Revenue Service to crack down on tax evasion and fraud, redirecting the agency's focus to high-income earners. So basically what she wants to do is she wants to increase the power of the government, increase the police state to come in and be intrusive and go after people and go after their money. Now, some people are probably thinking, yeah, this is great. Um, but I'm telling you, it's, again, it's a violation 
of liberty. Um, it's a violation of being able to keep the fruits of our own labor. So now we're going to have more agents, more inspectors, more intrusion into our private lives. And then even if you look at, uh, you know, there's been some conversation about this, about how many agents the IRS really has to investigate. And increasing their staff of agents doesn't move the needle that dramatically in the amount of additional revenue that can be captured. Certainly some will. I mean, there's definitely people that are illegally evading taxes. That's obvious. That does exist. Some of them might be captured, but it's not going to, is it going to 2.3 trillion? That's 230 billion a year or 2.3 trillion over 10 years. Um, that's a big nut right there, and it's only going to be accomplished by having more authoritarianism, greater police state, people coming after you, um, about tearing people down is what it's going to be about, and people living in fear of the government. I mean, how often, if you got a letter from the IRS, what happens? <laughs> I mean, every once in a while, I'll get a letter from the IRS, and it's usually just an address change because... I have my business address and my home address. And then depending on how my um, my CPA files something or my bookkeeper files some of my payroll stuff, um, sometimes they use one address. Sometimes they use the different address, the business or or the personal. And when that happens, I get a letter from the IRS. This happens probably about a couple times a year. And they'll say, we filed an address change for you. And every time I get that letter, I gulp. Like, oh, no. You know, here we go. Um, and thank God it's only an address change. But think about how many people that have literally had their lives turned upside down by an audit. Uh, it's it's a crazy experience to go through. I've never gone through one, thank goodness. Um, but, you know, we, we we follow the law. I mean, we're, we're, we're very ethical about it. Um, but... Even if you're a good, a good, you know, so-called good person, it's still enormously disruptive, enormously intrusive. She wants to increase that. Um, she wants to put levies on the financial sector and large corporations. Warren would impose a financial transaction tax of one one hundredth of a percent on the sale of stocks, bonds, and derivatives. She would also make several significant changes to corporate tax law. Altogether, this would generate $3.8 trillion, $380 billion a year. So this is something that Bernie talks about, having a transaction tax on every stock sale, dividends, uh, you know, or bond. And people think, oh, yeah, that's just the rich people on Wall Street. But you know what? Middle class people have 401ks. Middle class people have Roth IRAs. Middle class people have SEPs. Middle class people have pensions. Their own money that they've saved, that they've earned. And the people that manage those have them in mutual funds. And those mutual funds are buying and selling stock to optimize the performance of that portfolio. And so every time they make a transaction, that's a tax that's paid. And it's paid by the middle class who have those 401ks and pensions and SEPs and Roth IRAs. So this idea that she said the middle class won't see a tax increase is false. It's a lie. Okay, so people are going to be paying more. Um, And then also she wants to increase corporate taxes, changes to corporate tax law. That means she wants to increase corporate taxes. Well, who pays corporate taxes? You might say, oh, the rich people, the people that own the corporations. But where do they get the money from? They get it from consumers that buy their products and services. 
corporate taxes are always paid by regular people. The, the perfect example of this are tariffs. And with Trump's policy of tariffs that is widely condemned by our friends uh, on the left, our progressive friends are condemning it, thank goodness, Trump's tariff policy is terrible. Um, and we can, and I think I've already broken that down in previous podcasts, but it's now widely understood by everybody that that tariffs are ultimately paid for by individuals, by consumers of those products. Um, but really, a tariff is a corporate tax. A tariff is paid by the importer at the port. When those products come into the United States, they pay a tax on that. And then that importer sells the product you know, to a wholesaler or distributor who then sells it to a retailer, who then sells it to an end customer. And that tariff is passed on down the line and ultimately paid for by the consumer. That is widely understood. It's a corporate tax because all corporate taxes are ultimately paid for by the consumer. Now, Warren wants to increase corporate taxes, which will result in higher prices paid by the consumer, even though she promised that our costs would not go up. Here they're going up again, you know, in the form of a tax. So um, Elizabeth Warren, OMG, again. Okay, she wants to also tax additional take-home pay since employees would no longer have to pay their share of health care premiums because, remember, the health care premiums are the contribution that the, that the companies are going to be giving the government, essentially another corporate tax, a payroll tax. Um, since employees would no longer have to pay their share of the health care premiums, their take-home pay would go up. Okay, that's probably true. I don't know if that's going to always be true, but it probably is. Um, and this would raise another $1.4 trillion over 10 years. But you know what? That additional take-home pay is going to be taxed. And at the end of the year, these people are going to have a greater tax bill because those health care benefits were not previously taxed. Now, with the income, they're going to have to pay a greater percentage of their pay in taxes. So- the end result is, is that their taxes are going to go up. The tax bill at the end of the year, the check they write at the end of the year or their withholdings are going to go up because there's more taxable income. So again, another falsity. It's it's going to raise taxes on the middle class. Um, and then Warren seeks to generate the remaining $1.2 trillion by passing comprehensive immigration reform, which she says will boost the population and result in additional tax revenue, and by eliminating Pentagon's Overseas Contingency Operations Fund and directing that money to Medicare for all. Well, okay, this is great. I talked about uh, borders earlier. Um, she wants to make these illegal immigrants legal, but she wants to do it so she can tax them. And for them, their taxes are going to go up even though she promised she wouldn't raise taxes on the middle class. But for those people, those immigrants, their taxes will go up. Um, that's the whole point. That's how she's going to generate more of this revenue. And then she wants to redirect some money from the Pentagon, which I think I, reducing the Pentagon's budget, I think is a good thing. Um, but instead of giving it back to the people that it was taken from in the first place, she wants to instead put it into this Medicare for all plan. So, um, Joe Biden, love old Uncle Joe, and he said, the mathematical gymnastics in this plan are all geared towards hiring, towards hiding a simple truth from voters. It's impossible to pay for Medicare for all without middle class tax increases. 
To accomplish this sleight of hand, her proposal dramatically understates its cost, overstates its savings, inflates the revenue, and pretends that an employer tax increase is something else. So good for you, Joe. Uh, Now, granted, Joe is kind of in that moderate Democrat lane, that corporate Democrat lane. I I think Joe's going to have some trouble here, but you're right. This this whole thing that Warren put together was it was mathematical gymnastics in order for her to live up to her pledge that the middle class won't be given a tax increase. But I've already shown you multiple examples where they are going to get a tax increase. So it's just it's a lie. Is her position is still it's a lie. Now Mayor Pete, like I said, he had it right. I think. The right way to handle this, if you are going to go to Medicare for all, and if that is the inevitable thing, and it may end up being true that that is the ultimate thing that's going to happen, regardless of what I think, the right approach is is to do a a public option. That's the transition plan. Um, That allows people to have choice. Um, And if it's so good, people will be able to flock to it uh, because it'll have far lower prices, according to the utopian version that these progressives keep selling us on. So that should be the right way to go. And and, and let me just comment about Mayor Pete. Um, I've told you in the beginning that I, I've, I liked him as a person. Um, I thought he's smart. I think Mayor Pete is uh, um, he's authentic. He's thoughtful. Um, I think he's a good guy. Um, I don't agree with all of his policies, but I always thought that Pete Buttigieg was a good guy. Andrew Yang is a good guy. I think Amy Klobuchar is a good guy. Not a guy, but Amy Klobuchar, she's a good heart. And I think um, Tulsi Gabbard, all four of them, on a personal basis, I like them. I mean, even Cory Booker, to a degree, I like as well. A lot of these other ones, I don't trust them. You know, I mean, even like Elizabeth Warren, you know, she she used to support charter schools, you know, back in the I think it was in 2002, she wrote a book and talked about charter schools and the great opportunities they provide for disadvantage. And then she became a politician and then she flipped on it. And now she opposes charter schools. And you just think these candidates are just intentionally manipulating their positions. Um, these other four that I talked about, Tulsi and Andrew Yang and um uh, Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar, to me, they seem more authentic. I, I'm of the opinion, I'm, the more I'm thinking about this, I think Biden is going to eventually implode. And I think most people see that happening. And I, I think um, it's becoming clear that he is too old. He is, I've said he's from a galaxy far, far away. He, and when you really dig in on Biden, he's a nice guy, he's likable, but there's not, there's no there there at times. And then he still ha- lives in a frame of mind from 20 years ago. Um, he, I think he's, and we're already seeing it in Iowa. He's slipped um, in the polls. He's, I think he's in fourth place in Iowa. So he's sliding. And I think that's going to continue. And meanwhile, uh, Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar, who are these um, sort of moderate Dems, moderate Democrats, I think they're like vultures and they're waiting for Joe Biden to implode. And the minute he does, they're going to swoop into that lane and take that segment of the Democratic Party and, and really try to capitalize on that. Um, so I think he's, he's going to go down. Uh, Biden, I think at some point will lose or drop out. Um, Elizabeth Warren, I think, who right now is doing very well in the polls, I think now that she has released this plan, she's going to get attacked on it from a variety of different angles and she's going to have trouble defending it. I think Elizabeth Warren is going to slide back in the polls um, for that reason. Um, I think that 
some of her lies are going to be exposed. The unworkableness of the plant are going to be exposed. And I think, honestly, she's going to get huge resistance from the wealthy um, because she's attacking them so, so vindictively. I think that's going to erode her position. And then Bernie, um, love Bernie. Bernie uh, has the biggest heart in the world. Um, he's authentic. He's honest. Uh, but I really think Bernie kind of has a ceiling. Um, I think he has his hardcore loyal base and some of my good friends are big Bernie supporters, but I think he's just going to plateau at that position. So what's going to happen is I think Warren's going to slide back to the pack. I think Biden is going to implode and drop out at some point. And I think that's going to open up a lane. And I think Mayor Pete is going to slide into that. Don't be surprised. We get to the end of this. It's going to be Mayor Pete and Warren. And they're already talking about that now. And I think Mayor Pete sees that. And that's why he's positioning himself as the alternative to Warren. Um, So keep an eye on that. It wouldn't surprise me at all if Pete Buttigieg ends up being the Democratic nominee for president. And wouldn't that be something? Uh, uh, A Rhodes Scholar, a Harvard graduate, a veteran, um, a mayor of a small town, a real success story going up against Trump, uh, someone that um, avoided the draft, which I, I don't. I don't, uh, how should I say this properly? The fact that Trump avoided the draft, I don't have a problem with it because I think the draft itself is an immoral policy. Um, but when you, when you take that position and then you're going up against a guy that's a veteran, that's going to put Trump in a very awkward spot. Um, and, and Trump, who just makes so many foolish remarks, going up against a very, very intelligent young man and then having um, you know, the youth and the energy of a young leader versus an older um, leader in his 70s. I think that could be a fascinating race, Buttigieg and, and Trump. Because um, I think Warren, if she wins the nomination, she is very vulnerable with the whole Native American thing. Um, I think Biden is uh, very vulnerable because there's no there there. Um, I think Bernie has a ceiling. Um, and I think Buttigieg, I think, may give Trump the biggest run for the money. So I'm very interested to see what happens there. Um, and then Beto dropped out. Beto O'Rourke is out. Um, who's next? Um, I think it's going to be Julian Castro that we may see drop out pretty soon because I know he's near the edge of losing resources, losing money. So is Kamala Harris. But um, – I always thought that Julian Castro could be a very intriguing vice presidential nomination. He is another extremely smart person, um, a mayor of uh, San Antonio, a, a former cabinet member on President Obama's staff, and a Hispanic from Texas. Um, that's a very attractive uh, profile to be added to a presidential ticket. I know he was actively, uh, seriously considered by Hillary Clinton in 2016, Um I, I, I think Julian Castro won't be able to stick in the presidential race much longer. I think he's going to be a serious candidate for vice president. Um, and then you hear these stories about Hillary jumping in. I think that's just wishful thinking by the uh, Trump supporters. And they're doing that just to showcase the weakness of the Democratic field, which is pretty weak in general. Uh, but I, I don't take that seriously at all. There's no way that Hillary Clinton is going to run again in 2020, not after losing to Trump. And I mean, that would just be a mess. I mean, it would be like, who was the guy? Was it Adlai Stevenson that lost twice to Eisenhower? If you lost once, you can't really go again. If you, I mean, if you lost in the general election once, 
country basically says, hey, we like you, but we don't like you that much. So there's no way that Hillary's going to run again because it, it would be an almost certain defeat. I mean, heck, a lot of the Democrats today are down on her as well. So anyways, Mayor Pete is right. If you're going to do this this um, this single payer plan, um, you really should have a public option as the transition, as the glide path to get from our current status quo cluster bomb to the the single payer cluster bomb. Um, if you're going to go down that path, I think um, public option is the way to do it. Um, and here's just a couple of additional comments on all this. Um, if you look at our current pro, uh, healthcare system today, the reason that prices are so expensive is because the government has gotten deeper and deeper into regulating and manipulating and central planning the healthcare system to the point that it's this huge cluster. It's this it's this huge um, maze of requirements and and conditions. That's I mean, and and of corporations jumping in there to be like big pharma, the way they're blocking competitors and the way the FDA makes the price of the development of these drugs so expensive. Government is the reason that this is so darn expensive. They've created these perverse incentives and then these corporations are reacting to those incentives, which I've talked about earlier. And so now what Warren wants to do is double down more government control, more authoritarianism, more central planning. I have no faith in this. Now, they all people will say, oh, it works great in Sweden, but do you think it'll really work well in America? I mean, imagine if we had single payer today. President Trump he has a, you know, the health and human services cabinet position reports to Trump. That means that Trump would essentially be running the national health care system. Do you trust him to do that? Do you trust anyone to do that? I don't. Um, so I, I really lose faith in this. And then, you know, the whole notion of monopolies, you know, progressives rightfully rail against monopolies. But instead, now they want to put together a policy, a single payer plan that basically sets up the government as the monopoly. They want to nationalize the healthcare insurance industry so there's only one provider. So it's a single payer, a mono payer, a monopoly. Um, so to me, the, it's just the the hypocrisy is is crazy. I mean, heck, even the current Medicare plan that we have today. That's just for seniors. That in and of itself is a mess. I mean, we've talked about how the price of drugs cannot be renegotiated, how the price, uh, how drugs cannot be imported from other nations, how uh, patent laws have been perverted, which causes the price of in- insulin to go way up. We've also seen, uh, like I said, the FDA making it all the more expensive and time consuming process for new drugs to come up, uh, come forward. And the FDA, I think, has done far more harm, vastly more harm than good um, because of preventing these drugs from coming to market, drugs that could potentially save lives um, because they want to protect the interests of big pharma. So the current plan with Medicare today is a mess. Medicare today is cash flow negative. Medicare today is burning through the trust fund. Um, and in a very short while, that trust fund's going to be empty. Then what? I think that might be part of the reason here. They're trying to save it, and they're hoping they can get young people to pay for it uh, to cover more of the costs for the older people that are spending so much money on Medicare. So I, I still think the better answer here, again, I'm a big free market guy, so you know where I'm going to come from on this. 
the better answer is to unwind the regulations. We need more free markets, not less. The current system we have now is anything but free market. I mean, almost half of the current healthcare system today is managed by the government in Medicare, Medicaid, um, and VA. I mean, we already have a huge percentage of the healthcare system that is government-run healthcare insurance. But then the part that's not government-run is highly government-controlled, highly government-regulated, highly government-distorted. I mean, the Affordable Care Act, you know, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act has made health care less affordable. Prices keep going up um, as the, once Obamacare came out. So the problem is, is that we have too much government intervention. And if you if you want to see a test study of how it would work where we have more of a free market, look at anything in the cosmetic industry. A cosmetic surgery industry, whether it's Lasix to correct eye vision or, you know, any of the, you know, tummy tucks or boob jobs or whatever, prices on those we're seeing come down or at least be stable. Uh, Lasix used to cost a tremendous amount per eye. The price per eye has come down and the quality has gone up. And you know why? It's because people pay cash for that. That's a great thing because when people are paying cash, they're spending their own money and, and they're, they're going to, um, they're going to spend their own money wisely. They're going to seek value and get the best bang for their buck. Uh, right now, you know, in our healthcare system today, people don't care what it costs. They just want to make sure that somebody else is paying for it. But when in the cosmetic industry, cosmetic uh, surgery industry and the Lasix industry, people do care what it costs because they pay cash. They shop for value. And then they, you know, we, we really should be using insurance as it was intended. Insurance is a risk management tool. Insurance is basically to cover you if you have a huge bill that you can't afford. Um, that's what insurance should be for. It shouldn't be for your routine needs. Like you need a flu shot, you have your annual checkup, you break an arm and you need a cast. Those kinds of things should be paid for with cash where people are paying uh, based on value, just like you shop for any other good or service. But, you know, if you get hit by a bus or you fall off a cliff and you are in a, you have cancer, you have a catastrophic case, that is what insurance is for. And if we did that and reserved insurance just for those catastrophic cases, premiums would be way, way, way lower and far more affordable. And we would still be protected in cases of those life-changing events. Um, so, the, the, what we need are more free market and actually less insurance, um, less third-party pay. Because, um, you know, like I said, consumers don't care what it costs. Because, you know, they, they just they have no incentive. There is no incentive for people to seek better value. You know, they, they just care what their copay is. And, and as long as, you know, the insurance company is covering it, they don't care. So, um, yeah, so... The, and in Medicare Part D, as I said, that is the pinnacle of how rotten the system works. Um, it's rigged to support big pharma, to protect their profit margins, to prevent. I mean, how many insulin providers exist? I think there's only three. And in the United States, maybe one or two. Um, why aren't there a lot of other insulin providers? It's because um, they have distorted patent law. 
And as a result, they can block competitors from developing insulin. So that one company or maybe that those two companies, they can set the price to whatever they want it to be. And they can set a crazy high price. People that need insulin will still get it because they have insurance and then they figure someone else is paying for it so they don't care how much it costs. And the people that get stuck are the people that don't have insurance and have to pay these crazy high prices. Um, the system is a mess. I think we all should agree on that. The question is, is what's the solution? I think Elizabeth Warren's plan is terrible. Um, I think the right answer is to open up the market, free up the market, let people choose. And I think if we unrig the system, we'll see prices come down and things will become more affordable. Okay, so... Wow, that's a long soapbox on the Elizabeth Warren. Finally, her Medicare for All plan has come out. I think she's going to continue to get hammered on it. I can't wait for the next debate because I think we're going to learn a lot more. Okay, so if you've been listening, I've been watching this long. I know Pete Neal, you listened and watched until near the end. Thank you. Thank you for all of you that have gotten this far in the podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, if you'd like to continue the conversation, remember I said in the beginning, I love rational respectful, civil conversation. If you like what I'm saying, let me know. If you disagree with me, let me know. I'd love to hear your opinion. And we could talk about it. I'm not going to attack you. Hopefully you'll, you won't attack me, um, but we'll learn from each other. I'd love to hear your experience. I'd love to hear why you believe what you believe is the right way to go. And let's learn from each other. Um, so follow me on social media. I have my Facebook page, John Riley Project. Follow me on Twitter, on Instagram. Would love to have the conversation. And hey, if you're watching on YouTube, click on that subscribe button. That's one big metric I'm really working on before the end of the year is to get my subscribes up. And we had... We exceeded our subscription goal by over 60% in YouTube in the month of October. Thank you very much. Uh, but we need more support. So please, if you could, help us out. Um, and if you'd like to keep helping, uh, the main thing you can do is share this podcast with a friend. Let them know about it. Um, if you think we deserve it, leave a five-star rating on iTunes. Write a paragraph, a few sentences. Tell people what you think of this podcast. If um, if you are so inclined, um, you know, just uh, share it on social media. I, I post every one of the podcasts up on Twitter and on Facebook. So forward it to a friend. I know some of you have shared some of these and shared them with your uh, circle of influence. I really appreciate it. So um, love your support. Very thankful for it. Um, okay, so. A closing quote. I always have a closing quote. Today, I had an opening quote from Alex de Tocqueville, uh, but I have a closing one. And this is from the economist Milton Friedman, who I am a big fan of Milton Friedman. He's a free market economist, a Nobel Prize economist, um, and really was very good at, at, at presenting complex, math, complex economic concepts to lay people. Um, and I think he does a great job. But he, he made this quote as it relates to healthcare, and I think this is very, very poignant. And he made this comment like 20 years ago. He's since passed away. Two simple observations are key to explaining both the high level of spending on medical care and dissatisfaction with that spending. The first is that most payments to physicians or hospitals or other caregivers for medical care are made not by the patient, but by a third party, an insurance company or employer or governmental body. The second is that nobody spends somebody else's money as wisely or as frugally as he spends his own. 
And like, ah, both of these conditions exist in Warren's plan. She still wants to have a third party in this case, a government to, to handle this. Um, so people are insulated from the true cost of healthcare. So as long as they're paying their taxes, they, they should be able to get healthcare and people are just going to demand as much of it as they can, um, as much as they can get away with it because they don't care what it costs. So, um, that's going to create excessive costs in the system that'll be, that will burden taxpayers. And the second thing he mentioned is right. People don't spend their own money as frugally as you – people don't spend other people's money as frugally as you spend your own. So if you're paying cash for the service, you're going to be careful. But if you're spending someone else's money to help a, an, an entirely different person, you're not going to be as careful. And as a result, costs will keep going up. So Milton Friedman got it right, no doubt about it. So we're going to see even with – these utopian visions of Elizabeth Warren trying to control costs and manage costs, I'm convinced costs will keep going up. And that's going to create further and further burdens on taxpayers. And the options to opt out are now illegal. And that is a big problem. Okay, so this is another crazy long podcast. This is the John Riley Project. This is episode number 89. Um, it's Saturday, November 2nd, 2019. Thanks for joining. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. And we'll be back again soon. Bye-bye, everybody.